This podcast is brought to you by Appfolio Investment Management. In a recent study, Appfolio Investment Management customers reported up to 70% growth in their total EUM over a one-year period. How? They were able to cut fundraising time down by 50%, automate waterfall distributions, and impress investors with an online investor portal. Learn why thousands of real estate investment managers are choosing Appfolio at appfolioinvestmentmanagement.com. Welcome to WMRE's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at WMRE. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. David, how are you? Um, it's been a, it's a little bit of a crazy week actually here yeah. because, uh, both of my, uh, both my, both of my parents, um, who are divorced, actually, they don't even live together, but both of my parents somehow simultaneously got COVID. Oh. So um, dealing with that. And then also, which is somewhat relevant to the subject that we're going to discuss today, but I found out I'm going to have to move because my, um, landlord is uh, our landlord is gave us 90 days notice so i've got a i've had a what? lot this yes <laughs> that's uh that's no bueno yeah, that, yeah. And, and you certainly can't go stay with a parent right now <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> not that to fall back on oh my goodness well uh let's get your mind off that stuff for a little bit and and, and talk about uh this this report that you guys have put together and, and i know that you guys do research all the time so yeah. why don't you tell the audience what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, so we recently published a brief on our the third time that we've done research specifically about investment in single family rentals. So that's that's I wanted to just uh, provide a bit of an overview of the of the results of that. Okay, so you said this is the thir third time you've done it. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, the timing is actually important because we did it initially in 2019. So that would have been pre-pandemic. Then we did it again uh, in 2020. So that was kind of in the, in, I, I don't re actually remember what month we did it, but you know, 2020 in general was obviously mm -hmm. the pandemic year. So we did it again. And then, so this is the first time we've actually conducted it, uh, you know, in what is, basically a post-pandemic environment. Obviously we are not really post-pandemic, but you know, at least post all the crazy shutting things down and economy being frozen part of the pandemic. So it's that, that I think that that provided just given the, the, the different times that we held, that we conducted this provides an interesting snapshot of the sentiment around, around the sector. Yeah. Well, and I think that investors, whether it's real estate or investors in other things, are all kind of getting really tired of uh, all of us, right? We're getting tired of we're in pandemic. Oh, we're, it's it's easing off. Oh, no, it's coming back. Yeah. And so at this point, I, I'm, I'm going to coin a phrase right here on the podcast. I think it's more of a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> That's just like, it's, oh, it's back. Okay. Yeah. So no, I think you're I think you're spot on. I think that those three snapshots are really, really good. So I'm excited to go through this report with you. Um, I'm really interested. I am. Uh, I was I'll say that I was a landlord, um, mm -hmm. one, uh, one home. Uh, but now I have just sold my home that I was living in and actually moved into my rental property. And I've been churning over what to do over the next few years and, and kind of want to see what, you know, this report says for now and, and maybe some projections, hopefully. Yeah. So you're renting a home. 
as well. No, I, I'm, I'm living in my rental. What used to be You're a living rental, in your I, rental. I, yes, I've owned yeah. the house for two decades, but mm-hmm. I need to do a lot of work to it. There was some fire damage in there at one point. So I said, you know what? The housing market is amazing. Let's sell the house. It's too big for us now because my kids are out of the house. We're going to move there and I can I can work on this and, and get it ready and and let the market cool down, right? I didn't have to buy a house in this market. Yeah. I already owned this one. So that was, that was the whole plan is get into this one and wait this storm out of, you know, let, let the housing market go down a little bit. So I'm really going to rely on you to tell me when that is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, cause it is, it is very, it is very relevant given the evolution of this kind of, of, of the single family renter marketplace and, yeah. and, and the fact that it does have a, uh, an actual impact at this point on single family home sales for, for people who are trying to live in them. So um, I think there's a lot to potentially unpack here. All right. So give me a little bit more background of why have you guys started to do this report? I mean, obviously you look at all sorts of investment property, but why specifically did you start this in 2019? So we started this one because, I mean, I think just um, you know, building kind of off of what we were just talking about um, historically, single family rentals w- were a market that was not something that um, in institutional kind of investors, you know, your big public, big entities of any sort uh, operated in. Single family rentals were mm-hmm. primarily just people who maybe, you know, had a second house or maybe a couple houses, mom and pop, kind of like a mom and pop business. Um, somebody had a, you know, maybe even built a, a tiny portfolio, but nothing very big. And it was just kind of often, and it just, and it was, so there's always been a single family rental market, but it was, it was entirely populated by that. Um, in the past decade, basically coming out of the, um, the financial crisis is we saw the emergence of this sector. And so, and for a while, it was kind of like still a fringe thing. I mean, the, the big, uh, pioneers in this space were the large, a couple of large private equity funds who, um, got were and partly because the the laws enabled that there was an important uh, I don't remember the exact statute but there was a law that changed that allowed investors to start buying portfolios of of foreclosed homes as opposed mm. to having to bid on them in on a one by one and and but since they could suddenly buy entire you know portfolios that oh, created a con- that. that created like economies of scale and suddenly open the door for this new uh, group. So like some investors saw an opportunity, came in, bought swaths of, of houses that were foreclosed during the, the last crisis and basically created the sector. And then from that, they uh, a bunch of them um, spun off publicly traded REITs, uh, Invitation Homes, American Homes for Rent. There's a number of them that are now publicly traded companies that you can invest in uh, that that operate portfolios. They become the other the other thing that I think changed in addition to the fact that they could assemble these portfolios more cost effectively is technology. Uh, they, they could create portfolios that were in a sm- in a small enough geography and using also just better technology, they can manage the portfolios, pro- like actively property managed portfolios much better than they, uh, than, than would have been possible previously. So, so the efficiencies in terms of assembling the portfolios and managing the portfolio suddenly creates this new institutional real estate class. So that's like a long backstory. And then finally, so like 
some of these other sectors, like the main food groups and commercial real estate, like multifamily, industrial, retail, office, we've done uh, annual surveys on for seven or eight years. But finally, like, yeah, in 2000, a couple of you know, 2019, we got the, we thought it was time just given the growth of this market uh, to start gauging sentiment around it. And and just to give like a, a sense of how much it does shape the overall single family home market is, I mean, recent months, there have been estimates that up to 25% of the inventory of for sale homes has, is being acquired uh, by the for rental investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, you've got the, alongside of that, they have even started doing what's called build for rent, essentially building entire subdivisions of houses that are never, that are, you know, which is not new. <laughs> subdivisions of houses are clearly something that have always been built, but the difference is that they, they're they not built for the for sale market. They are built from the get-go to be rental properties. So, well, um, that's, so, you know, so we just wanted to gauge all of this. Yeah. The, the crazy thing is I had a flashback. You and I've been doing this podcast for a very long time. You've been, right. you've been reporting this for a very, very long time. And as you said that and started to, to speak about that, I had a flashback to a conversation you and I had a couple of years ago, I believe about Detroit. And there was this huge hubbub. Is that a good word to use? Hubbub? Yeah. It's yeah. a huge, huge hubbub because there were a ton of foreclosed on homes and people, average families were going there excited to be able to buy a home at a very, very reduced price. They were, they were I think the city was actually the, the ones uh, uh, getting rid of these houses and somebody came in and bought them all. It was right. one group, right. That came in and bought them all for whatever reason they were doing it, obviously probably to refurbish some and, and, or just get the property for others. But I remember there was a huge issue because single families were like, wait, this was my opportunity to finally own a home. Yes. I know I have to put work into it, but come on, you know, now one person you made a deal with the city or, or the state or however that worked and got them all. That doesn't yeah. seem, doesn't seem right. So, I think this is incredibly relevant and obviously we've been seeing it and I, I don't, don't want to plant seeds of, of whatever, but I've, I've also heard uh, from a couple of different things like Zillow um, mm-hmm. may have a hand in purchasing homes and, you know, and, and driving some prices and, and, and doing rentals. I, I don't know. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, the Zillow situation is a little different, although it is also been distortive to the market. I think, you know, they, they are what's called, um, an, an iBuyer um, that essentially they were like trying to buy homes to the, to flip, but like on a large scale. Got it. Um, and so it, it's, it is again, it, it is related in a way because it's, it's a way to invest in single family homes. That's different from just buying it as your primary residence. It's like, mm-hmm. a, it's like basic creating like an almost an intermediary in that process where, you know, they, they were, jumping in quickly buying homes that were on the market and then trying to flip them essentially. Um, but they got, they, something was, I don't remember, like it, we had some stories posted to our site about it. I'm forgetting some of the exact details, either there was something wrong with their algorithm or they were too aggressive, but they, but they ended up buying too many this way and so then they had to stop and they had to like kind of work through their inventory and they, they, they caused them some losses, but, but, but anyway, the point is that that's, 
that's the dynamic of, of a I buy of, of what's called an I buyer as opposed to so somebody that's buying in order to operate the house as a rental. Got it. Because they they were not removing, but it just again it created this distortive effect because rather than having like a a marketplace that's just you know residents buying from residents, whether that's for a primary home or a secondary home, you've got you know these people that are trying to create an investment thesis off of that. I mean, obviously that's also, again, it existed on a small scale for years because you have house flippers and, mm-hmm. you know, fix and flips and, you know, like a lot, lots of people just do that as, as a matter of course, you know, buying how, you know, buying a house and fixing it up and flipping it on the market. But again, that used to be like sort of an individual investor play. Suddenly we have like institutions kind of trying to do the same thing. Yeah. Well, let's dive into the research. What are some yeah. of the high level takeaways from what you guys found? So, I think one of the um, top takeaways is that despite some of the tumultuousness that we've had in the broad macro macroeconomic environment, cap rates um, on this sector have steadily ticked down in the th- in the three times that we conducted the survey. Uh, people said that average cap rates were around six percent in 2019. In this year's survey, that number had dropped to 5.6 percent. Um, in addition, the number of respondents who said that the cap rates are actually below four and a half percent jumped to 15.6 percent. So almost one in six respondents said that the cap rates are actually below 4.5 percent on these assets, whereas the number was about half of that in our initial survey. So mm-hmm. I think just any way you kind of crunch, just look at that, the, the the high level picture on sentiment around cap rates, it's measured cap rate compression, which is not a surprise. That's definitely something that we've seen in the marketplace. It's just, um, it just confirms that that's happened. Um, however, I should also be not terribly surprising, um, given that that interest rates are going to are are rising, uh, and there is a there is a pretty pretty generally stable relationship between interest rates and cap rates. When interest rates go up, cap rates tend to go up because there's usually like a, a risk spread between those two numbers that. Um, measures the difference in risk between a treasury, 10-year treasuries, and the inherent risk in whatever real estate asset class that we're talking about. So given that there's, so so because there's usually a spread when interest, rate, interest rates go up, it ticks up cap rates. So therefore expectations are almost 80% of respondents do expect cap rates to rise further this year. Um, and uh, but somehow, but also interestingly, 20% of people expect them to decrease. So it's it's almost like a four, four to one split, but it's just like an interesting sentiment that, yeah, by far the consensus is, you know, just given a higher interest rate environment, cap rates are likely to go up, but there's, there's a, a significant number of contrarians. Um, and I think what's also interesting is that there's been this dynamic for years in commercial real estate of, you know, cap rates have been going down year after year after year. We've had, and there's generally been expect like every time we, one of the things we usually find is whenever we ask this question, everyone's like cap rates are going up over the next 12 months. 
And the majority has usually been wrong about mm. that because, you know, 63% of people in 2019 said they thought cap rates were going to go up. And of course, cap rates went down in 2020 in the middle of the recession, 59%, I mean, middle of the pandemic, 59% said they thought cap rates would go up. And of course they went down. So there's, there's been some, some stickiness, even, you know, like despite people seeing cap rates being so low and 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 for such a long period of time they have to go up at some point but they've been very resistant to that it, i i i think though I, you know maybe we'll, we'll see if if the 80% is wrong or right this time i think i tend to think they probably will be right this time just given what we know about the fact that interest rates are going to be raised so aggressively throughout this year and it just if cap rates so for cap rates to not go up, that risks premium would have to disappear. And that's not likely to happen. Yeah. Well, that's a much larger percentage than the last couple of years, right? I mean, yeah, you know, 80, almost 82, right? That's, that's a early yeah, about, about 80. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good chunk. My goodness. Yeah. So that's pretty, yeah. So it's so like, whereas in the past it was like more of like a 60, 30 split or 60. Yeah. This time it's 80, 20. Hmm. Wow. All right. What else do we need to know? Um, in terms of the um, intentions, we also like to ask folks because we are surveying people. One of the one of the um, when you come into the survey, we ask to make sure that you're actually an investor in the space. Mm. And if you're not, we you know you get kicked out of the survey. So we are talking about people who do actually play in the sector. Um, we ask them what their intentions are, whether they plan to buy, hold, or sell in the next twelve months, mm. and the. Big consent. The big number this year was for holding. 59 percent so expect to hold. Uh, only twenty nine percent said they expect to buy. Only twelve percent expect to sell. So by and large, people like you know they have their portfolios. I think just given the context I was just talking about, that there is a little bit less bullishness about continuing to buy more properties in the sector right now. Uh, like I think the comparison is in 2020, it, the number that said they were going to buy was like 43, was like 43%. So it was 14, per, 14 percentage points higher the last time we did the survey. Yeah. I, and, and I know that you guys can't send out a survey every month and I'm not asking for that, David, but <laughs> I, I am really curious from, you know, March of this year, month by month, how that number would change. Yeah. Um, because I, I, I mentioned earlier that we just sold a home. Um, we sold it in mid April and within four hours of it being on uh, the MLS and on Zillow, we had an offer, a, a very aggressive offer, uh, which was nice. However, we could tell that it was an investor. We could tell mm -hmm. that it was somebody that was investing. Cause they said, we don't want you to show it to anybody else. We want an answer in two hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, um, you know, and, and so we kind of hemmed and hawed about it and we did decline that offer, but I'm, I'm curious. It, it just, it surprises me seeing the writing on the wall with the interest rates doing what they're doing. I'm, I'm surprised it's still as aggressive as it is right now. And maybe they're just trying to beat it out. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we asked that we, we conducted this survey more like, you know, the past month or so. So mm -hmm. I think like, like your, to your point, if we had asked that question in March, you know, before the Fed really, I, I don't, you know, before the Fed, I think they are, there was always some sentiment that they were going to increase rates, but nobody was sure how aggressive. And mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. now we know it's more aggressive um, that that number very well could have been higher. 
you know, back in March when you're talking about than it is right now. I think, you know, the in, part of the intention of the Fed is to cool things off a bit. And I think that's, that could be what you're seeing in that, in that response that we got versus yeah. what, what we would may have seen in March. Yeah. And I feel like it's almost like a merry-go-round that is being spun really quick. And so every time the interest rate hikes, right, every time they, they, they raise it, it's like they've sped up the, the merry-go-round and a couple more people fly off, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Those investors <laughs> are like, nope, I'm done. I'm out. Right. You know, right. I got to get off. Um, so it'll be, like I said, it'll be interesting to see that over the next, uh, you know, next year, I suppose, because I think we only know so far what they're going to do to the end of this year, right? As far right. as raising it, we don't. Yeah, we don't know and you know, we we and we have a general idea that they said they're going to raise rates, whatever, I forget, you know, a certain number of times. And mm. I mean, they could, they could always change that too. But at least to this point, we have we have we have that process has definitely begun. Yeah. Well, was there anything that was like unusual uh, that jumped out at you in the results? Yeah, one thing here, I think, just even related to this last question is. Uh, we have a second question we ask that's that's kind of meant to engage the investor sentiment is what do they people expect in terms of investment sales volume for the sector over the over the next year? And I think the picture we got is that nobody has any real clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Because like basically we got like an almost exact 30, 30, 30 split between people who said it would rise people who said the volume would, would um, stay flat and people who said it would fall. And then another 12% said they like literally said they don't know. But I think just like hmm. my reaction to that number is just, okay, people don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, versus, um, you know, in 2019, it was very clear. People thought like, it was over 70% thought the volume would rise or at least remain flat. In 2020, it was 65% that thought it would rise, remain flat. There were some that thought it would fall, but again, we're in the middle of the recession. So there was still a little bit of uncertainty, but I think it was still clearly a little more bullish. This time it was just, it's like 33, 29, 26, which to me, you know, just given the overall size of the survey, just like there's no, that's, that's close enough, those numbers to just indicate that people don't really know what to expect. So I thought that was that was a particularly interesting finding. Um, another one was like I mentioned earlier, we, we you know there's this dynamic of build to build to rent development. And um, we ask how um, whether people thought the that that current level is, you know, basically we're trying to measure whether or not people think there's going to be overbuilding or not. And um, not terribly surprising. I, the sentiment's pretty clear that that people don't think that there's too much of this development happening right now. 30% said the right amount, 33% said too little. So that's about 64% that are clearly on the side of, you know, things are where we're doing, you know, we're, we're not overheating what we're, we're building there. Only 18% said too much. And then we got a, got a fairly big number though of 18% said they're not sure. So I think the that picture to me says there it's not like ironclad certainty, but it's pretty pretty clear, pretty solid answer that people don't think that there's a risk of over development occurring with even with a lot of the build to rent that's happening, just given the overall demand for um, these rental units. Let me ask you this: I'm I'm mm -hmm. I'm really curious because. Um, 
you know, we're looking at our future, right? And, and, and the, like I said, the plan for us is to live in this house for three years and then either sell this house and take the proceeds from both and buy a, 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 a final home. If you want, I'm using air quotes on a podcast, a, a long-term home where we, you know, a little bit of property or whatever. But my thought is my, or my concern is, will the supply chain issues be an issue in two to three years if I'm going to be looking to build? And so looking at it right now, are you surprised by how many of these, I'd never heard of a build, build to rent construction community. I've never heard of that before. Are you surprised at the, at the increase or how much is being done right now with the supply chain issues and the prices of, of products? Um, I think it just speaks to the fact that like overall rents for single family rental, I think went up, went up like almost 10% pretty much Mm -hmm. nationally. Uh, across the board over the past 12 months that's a pretty good maybe even more i mean so given that that pace of rental growth which is even faster than the rate of overall inflation that i think is a big reason why um that helps offset any supply chain costs or delays and keeps people pretty bullish i think also there's just like a generally like a um, a deficit of affordable supply in a lot of a lot of not just of homes, but re- rentals and in, in general, there's just a lot of people, you know, looking, there's just heavy demand for rental. And I think that's, that's, that's created both by just generations that are not ready for home ownership, and also some people looking who have looked at the housing market in the past year, and it's, and it was a little bit too crazy. So mm-hmm. they just decided to rent a bit more. So all of this creates just a strong underpinning demand for rental, which means it's pretty safe to keep introducing new products uh, in that development chain, even if they are experiencing some of those things that, which they are experiencing things you're talking about. I mean, labor costs, supply costs, those things are clearly affecting their overall costs, but I think not enough to make the project, um, not enough to, to, to damage the profitability that they expect out of the project, just given where rents are and, um, even if they expect rental growth to moderate a bit, I don't think anybody expects rents to just keep rising 10% on a year over year basis. Um, I'm sure that'll moderate a bit, but just nobody, nobody thinks rent's going to fall. Nobody thinks demand's going to fall. So that's, that's giving people a pretty, pretty strong basis to build. Yeah. And I, I'm a disclaimer here. I am not an economist by any means. I just don't, my fear is that that's not sustainable, yeah. right? The, the, the charging that much rent or having that much uh, in rent, um, with again, labor and everything else. It just, it scares me a little bit, David. I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm just, I'm, I get concerned, but then again, I'm not an economist and I'm not, I'm not playing in this sandbox. So, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think 10% annual rent increases are sustainable for most Americans yeah. <laughs> who are renters. So, uh, I think there's, there's still some noise in the numbers too, because there was at least some period where rents went down a little bit or stagnated, during covid and then suddenly accelerated i mean like new york markets like the new york market market i like which i'm again going to have to enter um is a bit baffling right now to me too because we have there are all these conflicting numbers there's like the number the new york city population is is declining um so you would think that would create more opportunities but instead rents 
which crater which fell like like pretty significantly at one point during COVID, which is just not something that ever happened in my entire time living in New York. They fully came back to pre-pandemic levels and now are hitting new highs. And it's like, so you we have a, so, but we have a declining population, but somehow rents are going crazy. Um, but then there's these other factors such as um, the amount of units in New York that are being held uh, for sale, like rather than for rent. Um, I mean, obviously we don't have single family rental in New York, but we just have rental. Um, but you know, there are, there are a lot of people that just buy, uh, buy residential as, a, as an investment, even if they don't live in it, buy an apartment, buy a condo unit, it's a tax shelter, they do all sorts of, they, people are people do that, mm -hmm. international investors do that, it's a way of, um, you know, cur there's currency hedges, there's inflation hedges, there's all sorts of reasons, but like that takes supply off the market. There's also, there was a report recently that there the inventory of Airbnb units is now larger than the inventory of rental units in New York City. So, and I think wow. that's something that other cities have run into too, like that, None of this. I feel like these are not not good things and things that yeah. would need to be addressed um, for people to have basic affordability. And I don't really under and um, I don't really understand how New York had gotten to the point where like Airbnb is that unregulated. To be honest, David, this has been fantastic. I know we're, we're I've taken a lot of your time today, and you've taught me a ton as usual. Um, but can you kind of tell the audience some of the other things that they can find in the report and where to find it as we wrap up? Yeah, so it's, you know, on wealthmanagement.com in the real estate section, the WMRE section, if you just go to the main website and click on that, you'll find it. We have a resource research report section. So the write-up is there. Um, in addition to our other research reports, which I mentioned and cover some of the major pro uh, property type food groups, we also do an annual one on seniors housing that we'll be publishing fairly soon, one on net lease investment that we published earlier this year, number of other ones, but we'll probably have over 10 of those reports this year. Um, within this specific report, you know, we also like stuff that we didn't talk about because uh, I don't want to just keep throwing numbers at everybody, but you know, there's there's uh, questions about where people expect occupancy rates to go, questions about the state of capital markets and how widely available debt and equity are, um, what people expect for loan terms. And uh, we do even ask people what they, you know, um, expect for interest rates and the risk premium and that kind of stuff. So there's lots of um, other additional data points that are, well, so, some of those might, I think a lot of them are in this brief write-up. We also probably, we also will do a long, some of that stuff, which may not be in that report would be part of a longer write-up that we would do later in the year, which would feature more of these charts as well. Like for this one, we only did like one little chart to uh, just, that's kind of a teaser mm -hmm. just to get the report published. Um, but yeah, that's kind of about it. And I guess, you know, and if there's any um, landlords in New York looking for a tenant, you can also hit me up around that. There you go. I, well, I was just going to say, I would love to, well, first of all, I'm wishing you the best of luck in your search, but maybe this is an opportunity to do a, a small documentary on <laughs> finding a place to rent in, in New York, uh, you know, in 2022, um, might make a good article. That'll be interesting. I, I hope it's not a heartbreaking article. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be good. All right, Dave. Well, thank you so much for your time again. All right. Thank you. Have a good you one. Bet. And of course, our last thank you goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Common Area Podcast with David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at WMRE, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back in two weeks for all the stories that matter to you. And we'll talk to you soon.
Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WMRE or Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. 